I was at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and they had this tri-state battle of all the best high school bands. It was fantastic. The mm. talent level so high. But there was one kid in the front row. I did a, a question and answer before with all the kids about careers in business, just how the world is in sure. music. This one kid, it's like, this is, it was his, their second gig and he started talking to me about his record deals and I'm like, stop, just stop. Oh, you stop. You're going to be your worst enemy. And I think that people are their own worst enemy because they get impatience. And in some ways, society has bred impatience into yep. us. Yep. But I'm like, stop. This is your second show. I have no advice for you other than to have fun. Yeah. He kept pushing. And I go, stop. I'm just going to tell you, you're never going to succeed yeah, in the music good. business. I'm glad you did that. Yeah. Because you're going to be your own worst enemy. You're going to be impatient. You're not going to listen because you think you have it thought out. Yep. And I, and I don't know what to tell you. So that's the most thing I can tell you is you're not, it's not going to work for you the way that with your mindset is wow. right now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. As always, I'm Nick Lapara, your friend and host. So happy you're here. I hope you're doing well. I'm currently enjoying a beautiful cup of coffee. And today is my daughter Belle's fifth birthday. We're so excited. She is a little shrimp. She's such a tiny, petite, uh, loud, amazing, talented little girl. And we're so happy that she's five. So we've got some festivities planned for later today. And also I'm recording two podcasts today with two amazing humans this afternoon that you'll hear in the next few weeks. So it's a great day and I'm so pumped for this, today's podcast. Also, if you're listening to this week's podcast, when it comes out, the week of the 5th through 9th of March. I'm in Honduras with my friends at World Vision. I can't wait to share more about that trip once I return and have the time to process. But for now, I'm so excited to be there with them. For today's guest, the legend, Kevin Lyman. Now, I've had some pretty influential people on this podcast, for which I'm very grateful. But people freaked out a bit when I told them I was going to have Kevin on. I mean it. Lots of Warp Tour fans out there. His company, Forfini, has created the Warp Tour and many other amazing things that so many have been able to enjoy over the years. And as most of you know, this is Warp Tour's last year. Kevin has used the platform he has built, he and his team have built, to do so much good in the world. And I can't wait to share more about some of the things he has done over the years in our conversation. You probably know about some of them, but hopefully I'll be able to share some things. Hopefully I'll be able to pull some things out of him that you didn't know about yet because he truly is an amazing man. Here's what I love about Kevin. Through music, he has created a beautiful community of people that have helped so many other people in so many ways through the years. They have done so much in the way of philanthropy and humanitarian work, and they've used the platform that they have built to do that. I know Warp Tour has meant, means so much to so many people. When I told my friend Danny that he was gonna be on, he texted me the following words, true legend helped shape my youth. And I've heard that over and over and over again. And that's incredible that music, pretty loud, rambunctious, crazy music, has been used over the years to shape people's lives and to really help them as they grow up and mature and you know get married and have families. It's, it's truly amazing that Warp Tour, this music tour, has helped so many people. Kevin is a builder of community, a philanthropist, humanitarian, a family man, and a wonderful hang. My hour with him was so, so enjoyable. So without further ado, can't wait for you to hear it. Here's my conversation with the man, the myth, the legend, Kevin Lyman. I'm super excited about this. Uh, Kevin Lyman, thank you so much for oh, taking thank, the time. Thanks for having me. You know? This is super exciting. It's really funny, as I mentioned to a few people that we would be doing this, I've had Rain Wilson on the podcast, a few other people that you know are pretty well-known and influential, and there were more people excited about you being on the podcast, seriously. There were some starstruck Warp Tour, uh, yeah. uh, I guess, I guess alum that, that were really excited about this it, happening. It's so. like 50% of the world. Maybe that really want to hear what I have to say, and then 50% want to see if I put my foot on my mouth you know, so they can give me a hard time on social media. It's like there's, and that's there's, fine. No, there's no in-between anymore. We'll, we'll take yeah. anyone that wants to listen to the conversation yeah, to see, see what's going on. Yeah, yeah for yeah, sure. There's no in-between well, anymore. Well, this is super, super excited. Um, I met Kate a few weeks ago, and she really insisted that we do this. Um, and as I began to dig more and explore more, 
you and uh, the things that you have built have, it's not just music, it's way more than that. There's a lot of people being helped. There are a lot of people being served well. The world is a better place because you're in it and that's what I really want to tackle I, today. You know, I'd like to think we're doing my part, you know. It's been a, you know, a long journey to yeah. get here, but uh, it's, we've done our part. And sure. It's always been, you know, so it's always been that philosophy and more you get back into your life. It's, you know, I've always had music in my heart, but philanthropy and education in my soul. Yeah. So I've been able to blend that through most of what I've Interesting. Done. Yeah, yeah. Let's dig into that a little bit more. But before we do that, most people know about you 1995 on. Yeah. Let's talk about before that. I just want to get a, a framework for like, what are the things that made you the way you are today? So just give me as much or as little as you want to tell me. Just like who was Kevin before 1995? <laughs> yeah, well, it's nice to ask because now it's funny as the more you do in life, you get known for less. So I was actually up in uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this week judging about all the bands. And okay. they asked me to write my you know, write down how do you want to be introduced. And you go, and I said, it's gotten down to five words. The founder, producer, bands, warp tour. You know, it's like, here, that's fine. But, you know, there was a lot that went into it, I think, before that kind yeah. of molded it. And you, you kind of go back and, and look at your life and, and see the threads of what makes you tick now. Mm. And I grew up in uh, Claremont, California. Uh, it's a, a town east of Los Angeles, about an hour. And it was a military town, actually a military contracting town. Uh, okay. Pretty much the area was built around General Dynamics, mm. which was a, a defense contractor. But it was also education city. This is where all those great colleges, sure. Claremont Colleges, Pomona College. It's well known for the, you know, Harvey Mudd and School of Theology. So it was this little pocket amongst the sprawling, growing suburbia that was of a, a, a unique people who had mm. grown up in Claremont. So my father, he was an engineer and I, he, I was adopted. So that, I think that's come into some of the play and some of the things. I was an adopted child. Uh, my family took in four kids from, from separate people wow. and raised four kids. Uh, so when I look back, I think some of those influences that have gone in my life have come from that. Uh, but it was a really growing up in this kind of community that was, my dad was, you know, working for the government, but he, he always was willing to understand the other side of like, we didn't, he didn't really want war. He didn't think mm. war was good. And then growing up in this city where all of a sudden when I started branching out of the two, three little blocks you grow up in between your school back then and, and going and, and seeing and meeting people around my town that there was a, a hippie culture kind of going on and it was anti-war and... Uh, and I, they were always doing benefits for something. That's one of the earliest memories. There was always something going on in the community to help the community or help someone that need, in need. So that's what started threading through my life. Mm. Um, we were always, I guess, little entrepreneurs too because we, we didn't really have a lot of money. We always worked. I always had two jobs. I was uh, delivering newspapers, uh, mowing lawns, doing the normal things you would do back then. Uh, and everyone didn't get their newspapers on their computers anymore. Yeah. We actually had rotor bikes around and, and delivered them. But then I started developing like this entrepreneur. I look back now. My brother was kind of the same. He was a little more reckless. But we used to create things like Disneyland in our backyard where we would mimic hmm. the rides of Disneyland. No way. And we would take, we had one of those, those old things you'd pump and, and like a, a carousel in our backyard that you rode. And you know, it's all outlawed now because of safety hazards and stuff, I'm sure. Of course. But you know, we'd, we'd charge everyone a penny. And then we'd design Frontier Town down one side, I remember. And then it was like we'd pull kids in a wagon through and my mom would, would support it and she'd get her tape player and play tapes of you know country music when we did that and then when down our bat one side of the yard was like a jungle and we'd have the jungle boat going down and we would raise That's you awesome. know, a penny a time we would raise and then you know the neighbors some of them go we can't believe your your kids are charging to play in their backyard and my wife or my my wife my mother god that's a you know <laughs> don't let my wife hear that but uh, <laughs> it was uh one of those things where we we're always kind of doing something to raise money. You know, lemonade, sure. we'd make lemonade, we'd go steal pomegranates, we'd sell pomegranates out of someone's backyard for a penny. So always we'd make a penny and nickel here and there. But um, that kind of, you know, just, you know, I went normal life. You wouldn't say it was, it was, it was, it was, but you look back now and, and my, my dad, you know, he was raising four kids in an environment, there wasn't a lot of extra money, but we always did family vacation. There was always that vacation to the beach. We started camping. Maybe my love of the outdoors came from spending so much time because that's what we did. We just went camping as a family. And we raised, and I went through Claremont High School, and you know, had the, we were the kids that were maybe 
you know, lower middle class in a city of some wealth. Claremont had some wealth and had education. But we always, it was a, a city we kind of learned how to fit in. But then I, I graduated high school and uh, fell in love with punk rock that last year of high school. I met my first punk rock guy was there and his name was Xerox Clone. What a great punk rock name. <laughs> That's his amazing. His name was Xerox Clone and everyone would pick on the guy. But He's I was still around. Also, um, I, you know, I don't know. Yeah, interesting. I really don't know. And I always think about some of these people. Would I like to go back and see what sure. they're doing I mean, now? They, they started it Because I wanted to thank him because, you know, he kind of exposed me to the outside world, outside of world of music in a way. Because back then I was, I think I was listening to, uh, you know, my, what my parents listened to. They were listening to the Carpenters and they were listening to... Um, I was just about to ask that. I mean, that was the early days of, of punk. And so, like, was were there any tension there between you and your parents? And was that no. you considered, like, Are oh, you, he's going astray or whatever no, because he listened no, to that? No, they were always pretty, you know, it was... I didn't really become punk because it was very visual back then. It was, you know, back then with piercings and, sure. you know. But then I it opened up my ideas. So when I went to college... I was supposed to go to Cal State Fullerton, but the first gas crisis happened. Mm. And I literally back then, it was so hard to get into state schools now, and I just went through it with my daughter and universities in California. It was literally, they said, oh, oh, take this note over to Cal Poly Pomona and just give it to them and you can go to school at Cal Poly Pomona. Hilarious. So I found myself, I found myself at Cal Poly Pomona. I was going to... I didn't have any idea what I was going to do. I was living at the beach. I was a bodyboarder and surfer, and we all, I was that kid. Outdoor skiing was my thing. Outdoor, just being outdoors was everything. And I went to Cal Poly. My, my first major was journalism, and it was only because the girl in front of me was cute. And I asked her what her major was, and I, she said journalism. I said, so was mine. So I became a journalism major. All of a sudden. All right, of a sudden yeah. for six months, and I found myself writing for the school paper at, at Cal Poly Pomona. But I started walking around campus, and this is really, you know, I think things started to formulate for me and in that I was walking around campus and I, after six months she wouldn't date me so I switched majors I was walking around and I there was a swimming pool and all these people and there was lifeguards and I said you know what major are you and they said recreation administration and I said oh man do I join that to get to be a lifeguard and they said yeah and so I became a recreation administration major and uh also joined the ski team. It was a club sport at that school and became a vice president of a ski club and very large social. They didn't have fraternities. They had fraternities and sororities, but they weren't that big. And then uh, started doing stuff with the ski team and, and uh, to raise money. And I had a van and I found like-minded people because I was walking through campus and I heard music in the distance. Mm. And I walked over and there was a, a guy setting up for a concert, a noon concert. And uh, that was TSOL, a punk band, was playing on the college campus. And I fell in with this group very quickly, and they became my friends in college. And we, I had a van, one of those old bucket seat vans with hmm. an eight-track player. And I would drive, we'd all drive into L.A. to see shows. And everyone would take my van. And we would start, you know, that's the, when the scene was growing, the Roxy, the whiskey, it was exciting. Hmm. And then I, I started thinking, well, there's nowhere out here for these bands to play. Maybe I can... There was one guy doing small shows, but I said, maybe I can start bringing him to my school. And I started blending in shows and need to make money for the ski team and fund my skiing habits and all the stuff we wanted to do as a ski team. I started bringing bands out and booked them to play shows. And one of the first ways we did it was we'd rent fraternity houses and we'd pay the fraternity house $1,000 and we would set up in the backyard. It was all the beer in five bands for five bucks or, you know. That's amazing. And uh, when the, and it, sadly, a lot of times the beer would run out first. So we decided it was time that it was go. So we'd go out the back door and call the police on our own show. And then the police would show up, <laughs> shut down the show. We'd come back, pay the fraternity house. I don't know if that's the best business habit, but, but we did it a couple of times. And then we graduated to renting airport hangars and things. Wow. And um, I rented an airport hangar. I don't know how we did this stuff. We just kind of did it. I'd rent community centers. And, and just like people are doing basement shows now or VFW hollows. Right. I started doing those, but I always was on some grandiose scale. Like uh, the Ontario Airport, I actually got shut down one time by throwing one of my parties because security was a lot less lax, laxer. And I, threw, and I don't know how we marketed it, but all the ski teams, I think that's how the network we would do. And they would make, we'd mail them a flyer and then they'd make Xerox copies and pass it out to USC and UCLA and Cal State Northridge and Fullerton. And I rented an airport hangar and I convinced, they said I couldn't sell beer anymore. So I just started selling the mugs and giving the beer away for free. 
So it was one of my last big ones. It was like we, Killian's Red Beer was the beer, and we backed their whole truck in and into this warehouse, and underneath the, the wings of the private planes, we had bands like The Unforgiven, all the Stepmother, all these old punk bands, and Fishbone would come out and play, and we sold thousands of tickets, and uh, shut down the airport because the traffic got so bad that people were running across the runway oh of Ontario International Airport. It wasn't, it wasn't international at that point, but it was a, a, a regional airport. Still, you don't want to be running across the and runways. people were running around in their wow. Halloween costumes because the traffic got so bad. So graduating college, I, uh, of course, had no idea was what I was going to go do uh, with my major. And I went to Hawaii and, and, and ran a weight loss camp for girls in Hawaii and came home and was uh, came back after a great time in Hawaii and and, and uh, came back to California and needed a job and someone said hey there was a job at a punk rock club hmm. this woman named Marcel Brumall uh, gave me a chance she was high times events but everyone said you did all that work you did in high hmm. college and that's why I tell students get as actively engaged maybe not the same way I did or you'd probably end up in jail now sure uh, you would but get engaged in your life as early as possible. And then it just, and, and it kind of rolled into, you know, we did a club. It was a, she was doing shows like the blasters and lone justice and this whole kind of alt Americana scene that was kind of going around LA. And, uh, also a promoter in that venue was golden voice, uh, which now runs Coachella, but he, Gary Tovar, the original owner of golden voice, uh, was there. And, uh, they let me co-promote a show because Paul Tolette, who started Golden Voice, went to school with me at Cal Poly. It's amazing how many people went to Cal Poly wow. that ended up in the music business. Paul so it was Tolette. providential that you got switched over. So schools, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, and, and Paul was uh, there and Skip, Paige, and then one guy was running SS, working over at SST Records. And uh, I just fell into the clubs and I fell into running shows. And I think... You know, sometimes people ask, you know, is education important? And I said, for me, education was important, but it was the socialization that I got in college, that I, that I learned how to deal with people so much in college. You yeah. know, I was dealing with administrators and usually trying to talk my way out and learning how to negotiate my way out yeah. of, of some sort of problem. But it made business sense. And, and so I, I say that's the thing, you know, and, and college debt is such a great thing in America now. So I know a lot of people are weighing yep. is that debt. And it was a lot different then. So it's, it's really hard for me, but I do think there were so many things. In it. And when I did graduate, it allowed me to put, and I didn't even know I was getting a bachelor of science until the day I graduated. That's a little funny story. <laughs> I, I showed up with my family, all the bachelor of arts people showed up at like three in the afternoon. It was a hot day, showed up, brought all the family down and, and I walked up and they're like, we don't have you. Kevin, we don't have any Kevin Lyman graduating with a Bachelor of Arts. And they'd say, what's your degree in? And I said, Recreation Administration. And uh, she said, you get a Bachelor of Science. And I'm like, so I had to go tell all the entourage of parents and family that we had to come back like four hours later to another graduation. Wow, that's funny. So you've always been a builder of community, it seems, then. I guess it has been. Right? Yeah, I guess. Where, where, was that even when you were a kid selling stuff out of your backyard, or did that happen? Did that really happen? Because not everybody can say that they, they you know, got shut down by the police and you know, sold out hangar, airplane hangars for shows. Like That's not something that everybody has, right? <laughs> so when did that kind of happen? When did I, people I guess, start following you to you, do stuff? You start digging into it. That was really, you know, and you start thinking about your life now, kind of going, okay, where are those for? I guess it was the neighborhood. I was the neighborhood organizer in a lot of ways. There you go. You know, I, I'd organize the football games in the park. You know, I'd say, okay, we're going to do, now we're going to build a, uh, a bike jump over here. So I was kind of an organizer in a big group of kids and sometimes they wouldn't get it, but I would tend to bring them together through activity. Mm. I just thought bringing people together. So that brought the neighborhood together. We had a great neighborhood, you know. You had that typical neighborhood, be home when the street lights are on. Yeah. There was a park right down the street. We went to school right down the street. Lots of kids in the same age, you know, and we would go beat the hell out of each other in sports all day long. We would be outdoors from the minute you got done, and, you know, the only thing I had to do was I had to go to Hebrew school once, twice a week during that period you know, to get my bar mitzvah. So. There you go. Yeah. Take me from where you just left off to the start of what has become, you know, one of the most influential, longest running, yada, 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 music festivals that ever has been. I mean, this is a big deal. Like if I went to, in this building that we're sitting in right now and asked everybody, do you know what Warp Tour have you ever attended? Almost everyone would say they did, right? And this is just a random bunch of people in, in Nashville, Tennessee. So it's something that a lot of people know about, a lot of people have attended and experienced. Like, how did that 
start? What were the beginnings of that? Well, the beginnings of that started, I think, you know, when I was working in those clubs. Sure. Because I built this company up, and I, I remained separate, because one of the things that is kind of public knowledge now uh, was Golden Voice was originally started by one of the largest marijuana distributors on the West Coast. Uh, he ended up going to jail and doing mm -hmm. his time and everything. And I, I right away fairly recognized that this wasn't a typical company. And uh, I started my own production company. So it was always Kevin Lyman Production Services at that point. Contract, or not even contract, just doing the show, running sure. the shows for Golden Voice, which spun into doing other shows for other promoters. So I was not exclusive to anyone. And I never took a paycheck from anyone. It was only on a per show basis mm. I, I would run them. And I built this up to where we were doing, I was doing 320 shows a year. Holy shit. And, That's a lot of shows. And I remained living in that town an hour from LA. So there's a lot of my life mm. is, I think, that allowed me to separate from what was going on in LA. And we're talking the 80s. We're talking hair metal, we're talking punk rock, we're talking the Sunset Strip, all the movies with it shut down, sure. and the remote, you know. So I was working all the time, but every, basically almost every night, I would drive back to that, to get grounded in my town of Claremont. It was a very grounding town. And as I got my own place, I'd live in a little canyon, and it was really strange. I lived in a little canyon above Claremont. All the homes did burn down up there, but it was like a place where it was like nature. So getting back, mm. that connection to nature, just for an hour sometimes. I'd, I'd get home two o'clock in the morning or at sunrise and I'd have to be back in town at noon, but I have four or five hours at home and it would, you'd wake up and there was a stream out front and there was birds and maybe a deer going by or something. And then mm -hmm. I'd drive back into LA and deer did go by because I hit a couple of them late at night <laughs> driving home. Uh, but going back down into LA, which was a really exciting, but also potentially personally dangerous time because you were you know a lot of drugs and a lot of stuff and sure. you read all the stories about i read but i was so naive i guess even that i you know I, i'd understand i'd really think that anthony ketis was going had a sore throat and couldn't play that night when he was out scoring drugs you read it in his book and i go i did that show and i brought those kids up to sing wow. his sing chili pepper songs because he didn't want to cancel the show and we didn't know what to do and the rest of the band was there so we let people out of the crowd but i thought he was really sick and he was another type of sick and uh wow but I, I i built the company and it was funny because getting jobs out of claremont was really easy because if you could help me drive home at night so i had all my crew guys were claremont based and they were all guys because we'd all drive the van in and work a show mm. but i was so exhausted at the end of the show that i needed to get sleep that hour back on the freeway so if you could drive a van at night you got a job yeah <laughs> and um I built the company and we were doing so much and, and it was great. And then the music scene started to change a bit around 1989 and, you know, in the 80s, late 80s and then 90, it was um, that alt scene of LA, you know, it started out with maybe bands like Drama Rama and spun into bands like Jane's Addiction and the Chili Peppers and Fishbone and Thelonious Monster. And uh, it was such a really exciting time in LA because everyone was at, you know, very engaged. I look back now and we were doing a benefit show. It seemed like every three weeks we were doing, I did the first Rock the Vote show. Mm. I did the first uh, pro-choice shows, the Rock for Choice shows. I did those first shows in LA. So that activism kind of kept coming out of Claremont where I was. I was really excited because even in Claremont we would do shows when the great piece, the great walk across America, there was this walk, everyone. Sure. And it totally flailed. It was like a sham. But we didn't know that. All these people wanted to walk across for you know better America, and they got stuck out in the desert. So immediately we did a benefit show, and it was raise money to help get these people that were actually stuck in the American desert. They didn't know how they were going to get home, and we rented to help get the money to rent buses. But you know one of the things was they said that all they were living on was noodles, and uh, they would love to have some Parmesan cheese. So we bought one of those. 25 pound wheels of Parmesan and brought it out to them with the buses to bring them home. But we were doing a lot of things. Claremont, or LA was a very active town. Beastie mm. Boys were always out and they were doing benefit shows. And, and then that, you know, started. So all of a sudden, I was doing, uh, you know, seven nights of Jane's Addiction, six, five nights of the Ramones, and just working every night. And then I was asked to go on the first Lollapalooza in 1991. Wow. And I'd never been on the road. You know, most people learn they get in a van, they graduate maybe up to a, a theater. I went straight to like 
all of a sudden I'm helping buses run. and semis and, and, and semis and running a I was always the guy on the other end when they showed up I would make sure they got set up but all of a sudden I'm the guy showing up and and that's really you know when I started got to travel the whole country because I up until that point I'd never I was I, you know there was the vacationing in California and I'd been to Hawaii but never got to go out and really dig into the country and so 91 I got went out in Lollapalooza as a first stage manager um, it was exciting you know, we didn't have any idea what we were doing, and we were selling out these giant amphitheaters and, sure was and amazing. this music and the energy. And then came right home, though, and I said, it's always about regrounding yourself because a lot of people thought that, oh, that's my new life, touring on these giant festivals. I went home, and then the day after we finished up, you said you were from Seattle, and we were at the Kings County Fairgrounds out there, I think. And uh, I went right back to work the next day. I always try to do that. Go right back to what where you came from, mm. and I went and did like a Napalm Death and Sepultura in like some dark metal club, you know. And that wasn't really my music. It was, you know, it was, and and but I did it because that's where I came from. So I always like to go back to where I like come from. That's super helpful context uh, on a couple different levels. One is I always always love. I mean, I'm fascinated by the origins of people's stories because I don't think people realize we don't take enough time looking back on where we came from right. and like really digging into how that formed us. And so you did a little bit of that here for us. And I think that was super helpful. And two, sometimes I ask that question for people and they give me like a seven second. Yeah. <laughs> I was born in Columbus, Ohio and I have a parent and two siblings and uh, here we are. And I'm like, come on, give me more than that. Well, like your life is more than that. And so this was super, super helpful. Well, and then when, you know, then all of a sudden it was in, I was back working shows and everything. And I realized it's that time maybe to go get that real job. Mm. Because everyone's, that's it's still in the back of my mind. My mom was very, very sure. supported. Supportive, but she was very she was sick for a long time, and uh, but she was very supportive. But it was kind of still in the background. Like everyone would ask, like, when are you going to get a real job? When are you going to get a real job? And in 1995, um, I, we were blending a lot of charitable action sports things, boarding for breast cancer, um, board aid, um, events that we would have action sports, uh, snowboarding and skateboarding, and music. And I was doing some events where I got the Red Hot Chili Peppers to come down and play for, I think, 250 bucks to play on top of a skate ramp. And you can still find the videos the, hmm. at the Vision Skate Escape, where we were planning a big skate contest with music. And and uh, in 95, I was sitting in the snow, and I was thinking that, you know, my wife was pregnant um, with our first daughter. Maybe I'm going to have to go get that real job. But for one last summer... I want to go do something on my own, how I would mm. run a festival. I felt comfortable enough, which I really probably wasn't sure. really equipped to do it. But I'd done so many things. I'd done yeah. thousands of shows and been on tour. And, and uh, we were sitting in the snow after this uh, board aid show where we actually convinced Perry Farrell to sing Coming Down the Mountain, a Jane song. Mm. He was already doing porno for pyros. And the snow just bored across. The crowd was going bananas, throwing snow and you know, I was physically exhausted and we had to take this giant stage because of course I couldn't set it up at the bottom of the mountain. I had to take it halfway up the mountain. Oh wow. And just because that's who I was and wanted to put it in that cool spot with the backdrop of the lake and no one really cared but me. You did. You know, I thought it was awesome yeah. and I, I'm sure some people thought it was awesome but um, we were sitting there and I go, you know what, this whole lifestyle, I, and I think it was even maybe that day that I had heard that about the thing, the X Games and I don't know the exact day if it was mm. right before that or during that day that the X Games were coming. And they were gonna, it was going to be a televised action sports thing. And I said, whoa, it hit me that, whoa, this is a whole action sport lifestyle that we've led on the, the coasts, basically, is going to get known more across the country. Maybe I, like, like blending this with this music and taking a board aid, not so much in the snow, but taking it across the country, but blending skateboarding and music, maybe it's time for me to go try to do this one time. 95, it was going to be a one-time run. Um, and I look back at that, and the only reason I got to do it was by putting time in. I'd already been doing this for 12, yeah. 13 years, almost 12, 13 years. And I, I'm working through it and building those relationships. Because so many kids come up to me and go, oh, dude, how'd you start the Warp Tour? Not realizing the patience and timing yep. That's that, good. that allowed me to fail. Yep. Because I failed. That for, Warp Tour was a failure the first year. Mm. But it wasn't supposed to be called the Warp Tour. I think I've said this in stories. It was going to be called the Bomb. The bomb. The bomb. That was a term back then. Oh, that's the bomb. Oh, yeah, bomb. yeah, sure. Yep. So let's call it Some the bomb. Say, I still, still slips every once in a while. Because we couldn't, we, couldn't, we, couldn't we couldn't do name searches on the computer back then. We had sure, to hire a yeah. lawyer. And I was running out of money. I couldn't figure out. And then I, 
it was going to be called the bomb, but the day I was going to announce it was the Oklahoma City bombing. Oh, so you talk about four, like weird timing. Wow. And it was so unfortunate to have the Oklahoma City bombing. Sure, yeah. But if I had named, and you never look back, and that's never going to be something talked about. And, but I look at it and go, if we had gone out with a tour called the bomb and it bombed the first year because it didn't sell tickets, it would have been the bomb bomb and I yeah. wouldn't be talking to you. But then... I couldn't use that name, so I called my friend at, at Transworld Publications, who I'd done just done board, board aid for, and said, you guys have a magazine called Warp Magazine. Can I borrow the name of your magazine? I promise I won't put out a, a magazine if you don't put out a tour. And that relationship I had with him from doing this show and volunteering to help with all these shows, he said, sure, have the name. So that's how it came became the Warp Tour. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm very glad you didn't call it. I mean, even with just how things have evolved in the yeah, world, it's just, just bad it would have been a bad. But yeah, that's incredible, incredible context. So I'm glad you pointed that out because so many, even me, I'm I'm on the cusp of millennialism, but I still encounter that in my own life and have to fight that. And I do a lot of consulting and coaching, and that's what I encounter a lot of is there's this idea that to get there is a lot easier than it really is, right? And, the, and nobody wants to put in the hard work. Nobody wants to know that it took not just, not even just the first year of Warp Tour, but it took you tens of thousands of hours of putting on shows, some failing, a lot working, just the sleepless nights and the all of that is what it took to make this happen. And people don't want to do the hard work. And it still takes that to keep it going. Sure. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't get any easier. It's never gotten easy to do this tour and even harder in some ways. But, you know, you sit there and I was the other day, you know, it was like I was was at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and they had this tri-state battle of all the best high school bands. It was fantastic. The Mm. talent level so high. But there was one kid in the front row. I did a a question and answer before with all the kids about careers and business, just how the world is in music. This one kid, it's like, you know, this is, it was his, their second gig. They were good enough to win their area playing, but this was going to be their second live performance. And he started talking to me about his record deals. And I'm like, stop, just stop. Oh, gosh. You stop. You're going to be your worst enemy. And I think that people are their own worst enemy because they get impatience. And in some ways, society has bred impatience into yep. us. Yep. But I'm like, stop. This is your second show. I have no advice for you other than to have fun. Yeah, and do a thousand more of these. And then I had a, he kept pushing, and I go, stop, I'm just going to tell you, you're never going to succeed yeah, in the music good. business. I'm glad you did that, yeah. Because you're going to be your own worst enemy, you're going to be impatient, you're not going to listen because you think you have it thought out, Yep. And I, and I don't know what to tell you. So that's the most thing I can tell you is you're not, it's not going to work for you the way that with your mindset is wow. right now. So, you know, we went out, and it was an absolute failure. It wasn't a failure, but people saw that it was really, like it was a different I think people were thinking I was going to put out a duplicate. I heard someone say, what's Kevin Lyman doing with duplicating Lollapalooza, beating a dead horse, you know, these kind of things. And, and it wasn't. It was a, I was really that community. That's where I started writing the schedule each day, mixing the times up. If you remember, you know, just you never knew what time the bands are going to play. Yeah. That all came from learning on Lollapalooza when I'd watch Henry Rollins on stage every day at 1.20 in the afternoon, bellowing his heart out, saying important things, putting out his message to a bunch of empty seats. Because mm. as in typical shows, people come later in the day for yep. a festival. Yep. So that's why I started saying, in my festival, I, Henry Rollins, would, some days he would play right before Jane's Addiction. Mm. Or he would have been playing, you know, there would have been a rotation yep. to expose people. Yep. Um, and that's where I learned that little thing. I also was looking at the society in a different way that, you know, I grew up in a world of fuck corporate America. That was a sticker on everything. And I was like, wait a second, we, we buy their clothes. We use their products. Mm. Why don't we try to get some money from them to support what we do. And that's where the corporate sponsorship started blending in on Warp Tour. You know, there was always that, there was that segment of punk that Kevin Lyman sold us out, corporate, fuck him, you know, it's still that way. Yeah, I think there's still sure. that going on. But I use that to supplement this, this concert ticket that we sell, you know, that we put out each year. It still supplements a huge amount of what mm. we bring on the road. And I, it refined it, but that the biggest mistake, another thing that we wouldn't have been sitting here talking about the Warp Tour was in 1996. That's when the bands kind of stepped up, and Pennywise and No Effects were people I'd worked with in the clubs, but they heard how much fun this tour had been, and they decided that they wanted to be part. When their agents wouldn't take my phone calls, would didn't want their bands on my tour. Mm. I had little clandestine meetings set up from friends that that relationship building thing. Sure. My friends ran Billabong, and we would go hang out at Billabong and just accidentally all run into each other. 
and have meetings and decide that they would do the tour and then tell the agents that they would do it. And uh, that's got no effects in Pennywise going. But I, was, I didn't know how I was going to put this tour on the road because the promoter said, you can come, Kevin, next year but because we back you, because we support what you're doing, but we're not going to pay you much money because mm -hmm. we lost money the first year. We mm -hmm. need to make back our money. So I had these great bands, and, nothing, and that's where we thought, well, maybe we have to get a title sponsor, a sponsor to help us with this. And the original one my ex-partner said was, let's get, I have a friend at Calvin Klein. And this is 1996. Sponsorship just started crossing in you know, I had a couple little ones on that first Warp Tour, but sure. not much. And I'm suggesting that maybe we have Calvin Klein becomes a Calvin Klein Warp Tour, which I wish I had the drive. My wife's a graphic designer, and she actually drew the skateboard ramp, and it actually said Calvin Klein Warp Tour on it. I wish I had that piece of artwork because it would have been the worst brand. I'd bring it in here to WeWorks and like you know put it up like this is could have been the worst branding in, this could in have entire been the worst history thing ever. Oh worst my thing ever. But they got stuck in a snowstorm. Fortuitous things that happened. Man, so many of those. Right. Oh, old blizzards up there. And then sometimes you back look at your life and you're going, and that's what we'll talk about later. Like where I'm at now. Yeah. Because yeah. there's a move. Why I'm ending the tour now. Mm. But they got stuck on this runway. And there was a lawyer involved, and that guy could screw up fucking anything. Mm. And I asked him, I got a call from Vans. While they're stuck in this blizzard, I get a call from Vans that said, would you like, can you come down for a meeting? I'm like, yeah, man, they must want to be involved with my awesome music festival. So I go down there. They put me in a little room smaller than this. I'm sitting there waiting. The CEO at that point walks in, Walter Schoenfeld. It was rad. You have those mentors you look back in life mm, and go, sure. what a rad person he was. He was one of the founders of Vans with the Van Doren family. And immediately he starts talking to me, and I realize he's interviewing me to help him with his amateur skate program. Nothing to do with my music festival. Wow. And that's when you have nothing left in life. Just got to throw it out on the line. Because I had brought my stuff from the Warp Tour that I wanted to show them what we were doing. And I said, Walter, no one's ever going to see amateur skating unless you have part of my awesome music festival. We just had all this great successful first run. I'm looking for a title sponsor. He's like, I'm in. 15 minutes. Wow. And I'm wow. walking out. And he gave me $300,000 to go out, and, which is unheard of at that point as a title sponsor for an unsuccessful music festival. It'd still be hard to get that much money. And I know. And he, he, on the way out the door, he goes, wow. and you know, Kevin, I'm going to need you to do like six shows in Europe for me. I'd never been to Europe. I didn't have a passport. I turned around and said, absolutely, Walter, no problem. So later on, went around Europe, figured out how to make it all work. And that following summer, we went around Europe and pulled together six little mini warp tours around Europe. And, um, we got through that, that second year. And you know, that's when I say when no effects and Pennywise kind of legitimized it in some of the artist's eyes. Because I was the guy that loaded everyone. Everyone knew me, but I was the guy that loaded trucks. To that point, every festival was started by an artist. You know, Perry with Lollapalooza, sure, 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 Sarah sure, McLaughlin, yeah. uh, John Popper with Horde Festival. And I was the first production kind of person that did it. And uh, those guys coming out you know, really kind of legitimized it and brought it to an even though that first year, No Doubt and Sublime were on, but they weren't known yet. Six months later, they became household names wow. after that first year. So now we're sitting here 24 years later. Insane. Yeah. Insane. Okay, let's switch gears a little bit because I do want to talk. This is the Let's Give a yeah. Damn podcast on this show. I talk with people who saw a need, saw something wrong, gave a damn about it. That's obviously been a huge part of your life. You've already shared a bunch of that, the little things that happen, your parents kind of guiding you and showing you that to help people in need and to do those things. Then you did that built community. And so, that, you know, now, now here you are. Talk to me about some of the, some of the ways that you give a damn. Like, I know there's a lot. Uh, you, you, the Foundation Unites United, there's all the, the, the ways, all the nonprofits that come on the road with you guys. Like, just give me a picture of... Yeah, yeah well. what, what really makes your heart beat? What are the ways that you give a damn? Well, what ended up happening was when we started that Warp Tour, right away we started giving, putting 25 cents of the ticket towards a charity. That first year when we were making no money. Insane. Nobody still, was doing that. We were Nobody doing 25 cents. And people still don't. A few sure, people no, do no, now. Totally, people, yeah, yeah. It's still we all problem. should be doing that. Yes. But, you know, a few people do. But we, it started out as 25 cents a ticket, and we do 25 cents a ticket, and it, it was just like give back, do something. And then... We started going down the road, and through the years, we, you know, we were always you know, some of the first you know, environmental touring, trying to reduce our waste, reducing things. We didn't hire a couple. We tried to figure it out ourselves. But then I started getting people coming into my office, 
a lot of them with an idea. Same passion as me. Kids are my passion. What's their passion? So mm. that started with a blood drive. Someone was trying to start local blood drives in California because there was a shortage of blood. He came to me and said, Kevin, can you give everyone that donates blood tickets? I said, that's not the best business model. I can't necessarily, but you know what? Let's, let's see if how I can work through this. And we started giving away download cards. At, or at that point, we, I, we would include uh, CDs, if you donated blood, you would get a sampler CD from the Warp Tour. Hmm. Uh, you would qualify to get, well, the first year I said, everyone that donates blood gets a backstage pass. <laughs> and 3,000 people were backstage in Pomona. Then we got to where you qualify for different things. And that's where Music uh, Saves Lives came in. Mm. Um, and we, we were the largest independent blood drive for like seven years straight with the, with the Red Cross. Not, we didn't do blood drives at the show. Parents would call and go, are you going to take my kid's blood? Yeah, I'm going to give him a cookie and some orange juice and throw him in the pit, you know? No, it was done before the tour. So there was Music Saves Lives Blood Drives, and that kind of spun out of the, the Keep Abreast movement, which was, uh, you know, the I Love Boobies campaign, mm-hmm. kind of spun out of that. That became a nationwide campaign. Mm-hmm. Then I started learning, met Jamie, who runs uh, To Write Love on Her Arms. Yep, love Jamie. He's been on the podcast. Arms. And, and Jamie... I gave him a platform, a larger platform. So he was within the Warp Tour umbrella, just like a bunch of bands getting together. He came out and got national recognition. It helped him with that. And it just, it's been kind of going, and we've been addressing problems as one, I, either I see them or they become a problem, and I find someone to support us. So in the, recently that, you know, we've been doing our canned food drive because I, I found that venues were charging kids to skip the line. You know, come in early, $5. I said, why were we charging them? Let's have them do good. So three cans of food at the front gates is a large part, and that's Feed the Children Now. Um, a great woman, Lana Posner, um, out of the East Coast. And it started out with just a, a punk kid was doing it. Um, I don't want to go into too deep bill because one time he decided to abscond with some of the money and hang out with strippers and drugs mm. with one of the bands, but he's doing all right. You know, yeah. we've worked through him. I, I still <laughs> help rehab him after sure. he kind of went off the rails, but we work with an organization called Feed the Children Now, and it's gotten to a point where we're, we do between 400 and 500,000 pounds of food wow. um, a summer, and it stays in the local communities. So it's collected each day by a local group, and we find groups that don't charge for the food because some pantries will charge or something. It has to be straight to a, a, a good group. Uh, so it's exciting because we engage the community. My thing is about engaging the community before you come to the show. So kids now, thinking when they come to Warp Tour, when we were growing up, maybe it was like, where are we going to get a six-pack and drink it in the bushes? That was about our extent of community organization. Hmm. But I'm like, now we have kids, and we've given Warp Tour. Kids love coming to Warp Tour, and they want to be there the whole day because they're true music fans. They're not just coming to see one band. They're talking before they come to the show, and I think communication is something we, are, we need to keep fostering and pushing. Yeah. So they ask each other, Did you, do you have any old cell phones? Because that's one of our things. We collect old cell phone, phones that could be recycled. There's a charity that takes them all. We ship them all to them. And uh, they use the money you know, for different programs. They give us some of the money that we put back into Unite the United and some of those programs. And that helps feed the children now since they manage it. Uh, then you're calling your bro or your girls and you say, hey, like, grab your phones because I don't want you to have to stand out in the end of the line while I'm in the front. Or you got your canned food. Or we do five dollar donation, yeah, then the yeah. money stays locally. You know, we 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 really try to help with that community. So by the time you get to the show, you're you're part of a group. Yeah, like it's you're, a family. You're, you're communicating. Yeah. In the last few years, um, as teen suicide is hitting all times rates, mm. that's what I uh, found a guy named uh, Johnny uh, Bouchard out of uh, Hope for the Day, out of uh, Chicago, and he kind of came into our fold and and is on the road with us and does counseling and talks to people, and then a couple years ago you know we have the me too movement going right now yep, yep. Um, about three years ago i wasn't probably fully equipped even though i've learned more about i'm on the board of music cares um i know how to deal with uh, addiction counseling now much more i'm not a trained counselor but i know how to recognize signs and we travel with a, a counselor that we can do stuff on the road with but there was some of these artists you know with with, with phones and are getting in trouble you know, sending photos of your junk around, mm. you know. It's too accessible to get in trouble. 
You know, I always like to say in the 80s, you would have uh, had to have an Instamatic camera and you would have had to think it was a smart idea to take a photo and then put it back in your bag and then the next morning wake up in the next city when you're on tour and then take it to the one-hour photo shop and still have enough guts to go get it after you know the guy, person behind the counter saw those photos. And, you know, it, there was processes to let the brain process yep. Yep. right and wrong. Yep. Wrong, when the adolescent brain is not developed till 25 now, wrong can come very quickly. Yep. There, and there's, there's, so there's a correctable wrong and there's a habitual wrong mm-hmm. in life. When I go back through my life, if I wrote people off, I have a lot of my early crew were ex-convicts. Mm. Guys who I had known that maybe had gone down the wrong path or people I knew that went down the wrong path and they did their time. Most of it was drug-related or something. Mm-hmm. They did their time and they got in our world, and then I was like, you know, no, they couldn't get, and I found people weren't giving them jobs, so I put them back to work. It's amazing. And you know how loyal they were? Yeah. And thankful? And yeah. now I hang out with them. I did a benefit show up in, uh, for fire relief two weeks ago. All it took was one email, and they were there. They didn't even ask, like, are we getting paid? They just were like, we're there for you, Kevin. It's a good thing to do good. If you say it's good, those people have been working for Incredible. me for over 20 years. So all of a sudden, there social media, you know, I guess I've become a, a, a lightning rod warp tour in some ways because it's been for a whole community, a vast majority. We have a, 900 people on the road. Let's say the average age. Now, I, we drag up the average age, maybe some of us on the tour, but the average age of the touring potter, you're probably about 20 years old, 20 to 22. It's a lot of energy. Yeah. And a lot of the things, that's the interesting thing. Warp tour as a community and my wife will tell you, is, was the safest place for her daughter. She never thought being on a music tour would be the safest place for our daughters to grow mm. up. But it was because the Warp Tour is run by women. You know, you mentioned yeah. Kate. I look at your team. Oh, yeah. it's, it's yep. super strong women. Yep. And I've always had strong women on my team. Yeah, love it. And encourage women. And, and it was hard because they were attacking the Warp Tour. But then when you trace it, some of these, most, every one of these bands was getting in trouble somewhere outside of Warp Tour. Sure. There's been a couple instances. But sadly... And my wife said, you can't go run around and say this. We used to deal with it a different way. We had mentors. You had Dropkick Murphys. You had Rancid. Yeah. You had H2O. And if you were a young band coming and being a jerk, you got taken behind the bus and lectured to. Yeah. Or sat down and said, this behavior is not tolerated in this community. Yeah. And if you continue with this community, you will end up paying in a different way. Mm. Which you, I'm not one for physical violence, but... yeah. That's how our world was running away. Yeah. You know, we had an artist who started his career. And if I wrote him off in his career, he wouldn't be with me and he'll be out with me this summer. And he's Mm. become a leader in the community because he remembered, he realizes who he is and he's trying to get back. He does a lot of good work. He counsels people. He's come to terms with himself. But that first day on Warped Tour, he wore a shirt where they had the C word on the front. And he goes, he tells people, he goes, you know what? Back then it was like, I got taken behind the bus and told, you have two options. You eat the shirt or you don't wear it. If you wear it again, you're only going to have option one. And he goes, that stuck with me. That was my mentors. And we were actually on this tour, and it was a really young tour. The mentors now, it's hard to get some of the older acts for different reason to come because they have different lifestyles. They're not touring the same way. Sure, sure, they sure. don't want to be out on a row doing 18 shows in a row. And they play, Disney, they play House of Blues and play four nights at the House of Blues and yep. can go to Disneyland with their kids or something. Yep, yep. So I got caught up in, like, because I thought, one, you could negotiate, educate, and debate on the internet, which you can't. No. And I, because I come from a world of communication. I come from sitting under the tent in the bus, and, and it was the first time I woke up to a band putting something on social media that they, didn't, they went public before they came and talked to me. Mm. And I'm on every tour. People right. don't realize I'm in that parking lot every day. You're people, there. people don't realize at 57, it's not necessarily where you want to be your whole life, but I'm dedicated to what I do. So I expect people to come and actually have communication with me if they have an issue with me. And it was the first time I, would woke, I woke up into this art new, new realm of communication or lack of communication where I would wake up and that kid band's bus is parked right near mine. They know where I'm at. And they send out something out into social media versus coming and talking to me. So all of a sudden, as always, we get misinformation in social media. It gets yep. distorted. Yep. I've got some stuff going on right now, on a, but I, I know how to deal with it all right now. But back then, I didn't. So all of a sudden, I'm starting to, what's going on here? This is, 
it's good. You know, we've got some problems. And then when I was there in Nashville, there was an artist who got himself in trouble. He wasn't brought on the Warp Tour. It gets distorted that I put him yeah. back on the Warp Tour. Yeah. By then, I was looking for outside counseling, and I went to the team of counselors because I truly believe this guy, as well as the women, we, went, we put help out for everyone, but I, I don't think it was the point where his life should have been written off. Because I think writing people's lives off, some should. That doctor with the... Olympians, yeah, yeah, fuck him. Yeah, you know, he's gone. Yeah, yeah. And it should have gone a long time ago. And totally. the people that supported him should be gone. I made potentially now, but I have to make those decisions in split seconds because I'm on the road. There's so many decisions have to be made. You have to make decisions right or wrong. That's what I think got me. I'm willing to make decisions and live by those decisions. But now reflecting on it, maybe I shouldn't have done that because now I understand just talking to the women. But there was no discussion then. It was just very quick. The counseling team asked, he was being treated here in Nashville, and asked if he could come play a few songs in the acoustic tent. They thought it would be okay, and he'd be under supervision, and, and I'm like, okay. Well, it blew up into a very, and I know now that it, you know, I'm learning more about triggers, and it was new, all these mm. things, and, and I was trying to deal with it, and you know, I, I, I let him come down and play. It angered some people, it angered an artist. He went public, and, and it just became this avalanche of, of hate towards what you've worked so hard to do. Mm. And you understand now that the avalanche could, could hate if I told you the day was beautiful, and 50% would, and 50% yeah. says they're outraged, or yeah. you know, it's like the national anthem with Fergie. Who yeah. fucking cares? She yeah. just sang it. Yeah. Who cares? She just sang it the way she wanted to sing it. But now it's a national debate on who yeah. cares? Yeah. We care so much about stupid things. Yep, 100%. And what this did was, so all of a sudden I'm like, oh man, the world's changed this far. I'm disconnected. So I tried to do these town hall meetings, which were a disaster, including everyone in this process. People that didn't have 30 years of experience in this world. Sure. It was a disaster. Summer was just a disaster. And I came home and I said, you know, is this, am I just going to, and I said, no, 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 I'm going to learn from this. So I tried, found a group called A Voice for the Innocent, mm. a group of um, professionals and therapists who love music. I reached out to them. Um, I invited them to a couple shows that summer to show them what I was going through. Jamie Cyrus. Jamie, yeah. yeah. And he came down and, you know, he's running on a shoestring then. I think now he's starting to get a little more help. And a little more, yeah. I'm driving people to him. And that came from the Warp Tour. Because he's good. He's good yeah. people. Yeah. But you know what? He understood what I was going through. And that's where the following summer, I funded them to come out on the road. And I also learned from that college and high school counselors don't have the material. They don't even know what the services they are in their own neighborhoods now. So we would pass out cards for kids that need help. That maybe have sexual abuse or sexual harassment or feel uncomfortable. We give them cards so they can get local help. And that was Jamie. And I gave him the money to do that. Mm. So you could still take, you're taking the flack from one side, but yeah, you know, sure. I funded him to come out yeah, there. Yeah. And even last year, you know, this couple group wanted to start called Safer Scenes, you know, making shows safe, mm. you know. I gave them money, mm. but they weren't ready. They, they turned around and attacked me in some ways. It was like, whatever. But they're not ready. They're not professionals. They sure. were young people trying to do good. That It's better to get trained people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Jamie is very trained. Now he's building a network. Yep. Artists are supporting him outside of Warp Tour, yep. which I love when people reach. So you see tables at shows now that yep. he's at. That's the kid online attacking me still. I, that's their right. Sure. That's their right. But I always tell them. And that, even that summer, I was saying, all death threats come after midnight. I realized that because I was getting death threats. Um, I invited him to come talk to me. Invited kids. Mm. Come down and say, anyone who wants to have a grievance with me, come down in the morning and chat because I yeah. want to learn from you. Yeah. And it, it turned it weird because all the, all the kids who wanted jobs started coming down, Gosh, yeah. which was okay. I didn't mind saying, but we had a couple come down. And you know what? When I walked them around and showed them what we do, we do more than anyone to keep people safe at a mm. show. They met the women who work for me. And next, by the time they were leaving, they wanted to know if they could apply for a job on Warp Tour. So right now we're at the point where I'm, it's the last Warp Tour. Mm. People are going, why is the last warp tour? I go, I think I've accomplished everything I possibly can in the format that warp tour is in now. Uh, the world's changed a little bit. There's not a sense of the bands aren't a community anymore. They fight online. They do all this. And warp was built on community. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to take, I'm not going to worry about the music side after warp tour. Mm. Music will be a threat. It's, I love music. Sure. But it's that half a million kids. The 300,000 kids out there that are super engaged 
into the warped community. Yeah. Because I always said I was going to do the last tour and go be a school teacher. And then I realized oh, interesting. warped has been a, a classroom. Yeah, 100%. It's been a classroom for people teaching just as simple as how to go to a festival, how to work on festivals, because now all the large festivals in America, you go anywhere and it's flooded with Warped Tour people, alumni working on interesting. them. Interesting. You brands broke on Warped Tour, yep. Hurley, Volgum, yep. yep. you know, nonprofits broke on Warped Tour. The kid that wants to attack because that one band won't be on Warped Tour, that's fine. It's the Warped Tour really wasn't ever for you. Warped is for those kids that go back into their communities and do things. So I'm, t- so I'm really looking at forward to this time to focus on all these nonprofits. I've got a lot of ideas. And I'm launching an opioid initiative on March 1st coming up here. I was uh, hoping you'd talk about that because Kate, Kate told me that you're really yeah. uh, pumped, pumped up about it. Yeah, so what, 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 what is that all about? If I've been pumped up so far, I'm going to get pumped up a little more about this. Uh, yeah. Traveling the country, you know, just as I've learned about more about what was going on the internet and having people like Jamie, I've been traveling under the, underneath that tent. It's called the tent number one. I'll be passing out beer koozies this year. The last drink you'll ever have after under bus number one. People, wow. I tell them that and they get really sensitive. Like, oh my God. you know, Because yeah. I mean? we've had some amazing conversations mm. because you can bring people with different interests and different opinions under bus one. All my bus drivers are deep south guys and we were talking about the deep south. They grew up in Alabama. They're hanging out with, a, a, I guess, a liberal kid from California. Yeah. But you know what? We find common ground. Of course. We're never going to agree on a couple things. Sure. But you but know there's what? There's so much that we, we can. We find we so much we can. Yeah. So that platform of bus number one is where I want to go with, hmm. is, is that discussion we've had. So under that tent in the last few years, the discussion tends to turn to, I have a friend who's got hooked. Hmm. I had a doctor overprescribe my niece, my son. And then I started doing my research, reading great books like Deadland. And I also was understanding the political climate because I, under, I can see that perspective of spending time in truck stops across America and hearing the pain that people have mm-hmm. and understanding more and more what it's like when a GM plant closes in your neighborhood. You don't have that in my neighborhood. Right. But I understood we, we've got a fractured country. So the opioid thing was, and I kept looking, and there's no large initiative like Truth, the anti-smoking campaign that's been successful. We've had on Warped Tour for 20 years. There's no large initiative out there. So it was very strange. A friend of mine who kind of puts people together in different settings, technology company out of Australia called iPug, a doctor who's done amazing research on gamification. Her name is Jackie. Started putting this thing and saying they want to launch. They did a a thing in um, Australia on childhood obesity an app about learning about hmm. childhood abuse. They gamified it. Gamifying. Hmm. So everything's about gamification, as we yeah. all know now. Yeah, of course. So the program that we're trying to show, some true measurement of education and success by gamification. So what's a better game than Warped Tour? Warped Tour is one large game, if you think about it. You've got to figure out where I'm going yeah. and what the pieces of the day. Yeah. yeah, yeah, So we're launching it next on the, mar- on the announced date. Download this app. It's going to be called, we got the name now, it's called Fend, um, and it's going to be an app that encourages you to do basic things to learn about opioids, because what we're finding is how little people actually know about opioids. So kids can learn basic things, be asked a few questions, and they'll qualify to win tickets to the Warp Tour. Hmm. As that progresses, keep following it. And if you're following it and goes through the prompts up until a certain time, you'll get a notification that you've qualified for a special acoustic set by two artists. Your choice, you get to come backstage for a special acoustic set backstage by that band. Wow. We're also going to add in things like prizes, the prize of the day. Are you on your app? Have you checked your app today? If you can answer this question, you now qualify for a custom skateboard. Keep going with this. We're going to have signs on our merch booths and things that I get signed up. Show your Fend app and get a dollar on, off on your T-shirt. Hmm. Show your Fend app, get a gift from, we are over at Journey, is one of our sponsors talking, so they'll have a special thing for those kids. Hmm. Then encouraging parents in the parents' tent, encouraging people to spread the word on this app, will geotarget where it goes in, and I'll come in and produce a show in your neighborhood sometime in the fall. I'll bring a band. It'll be a Kevin Lyman barbecue party for you at your school Amazing. or where we can figure it out. Yeah. And then the idea being that we will take this to a much larger national level, get more music involved, get entertainment involved, reward kids for learning. 
Then the second part of it will be to work with um, people in recovery. So some people know it's an issue, but give me some statistics real quickly about like, wh- wh- why is this even a thing for you? What's, <laughs> what, are we, what are we dealing with in the US? Well, I've been lucky enough to have so many people in my backyard and, and it was really strange because my 91 year old neighbor came over and says, why are all the people in coats and ties at your house? Are they there to arrest you or sue you? Because they're used to seeing people. <laughs> and I said, no, these are the people from their bipartisan um, lobbyists in DC. They came to, to your house. Yeah, we had, well, I do everything in my backyard. It's yeah. always a barbecue, there's food, we have a good time. It breaks people down in sure, community 100%. versus yeah. a boardroom. Yep. And so we've got all these people, the, the founders of Narcan, the, the people wow. that run were in my backyard. Wow. And they're trying to break into the music world. We won't go into it, but they're, everyone's got their hand out for money and we're like, wait, I can help navigate this a little better for you. Yeah, yeah. So I th- we're hoping, we're, looks like they're going to be a big supporter of this. You know? So we're bringing a great team of people. Hmm. But when you talk about the statistics of opioid addiction, we're talking about 2016. That's the, the numbers just keep out on 2016. We don't have current numbers. Probably much higher. Double. And that you talk to the people in Nar- from Narcan, and what they told me in my backyard, it makes your skin crawl. Because they're saying, in five years, there will be no more heroin. It'll be fentanyl. There's no reason to have these drugs. Will, fentanyl will, will replace everything. And it's already coming in so quick through the mail. But we're not allowed to. They don't really talk a lot about it because we want to build that lovely wall to keep all the drugs out. Mm-mm-mm. So if they really said how much it's going, you know, it'll come out of China and go through three other countries before it gets here. It's coming just in the mail. Like, in the mail, like, like, in yeah, because you can put so little fentanyl, like on paper, like dra- you know, um, melted in a paper, it, it's in a letter form. Like a patch or something. A, a le- like a letter, yeah, patch. Basically, yeah. it's a letter form, enough that it was a kilo, a kilo of heroin. Stop. No. So what they're saying is, is people in, in post offices ODing, touching things. Because they're, they're touching it. Touching it. Wow. So... It's growing so quick, and if you look at those stats, and they say there's no, and then part of this process is another group that we're, this group's getting larger, but people who want to do something, everyone that in the note, a person who does regional mapping, all the heat-seeking maps and all that is developing something, because I think, we think every, every first responder should have an app that links to a central database on opioid um, overdoses, because it's the only way to be able to figure out, you know, so right now it's all just spotty, like even people across the city don't even know what's happening. Mm. But if you could centralize all this and every first responder in the country had was able to pinpoint where they had just treated someone or what's going on, you could start seeing hotspots. And that hotspot would mean that either you had a, a doctor over-prescribing, which is a big problem, or are we now have a spot where they're bringing in extensive amount of drugs. So if we could do this in real time, it's the only way that we're going to figure out what the real numbers are. Because the morgues are overflowing, they got refrigerator trucks. More, some of them aren't even trained in seeing what what's killing people right now. My goodness! And then look at our industry, you know, Tom Petty, you know, yeah, yeah, all these people were, yep. you know, yeah, it's insane. Gosh, we could talk for forever, yeah. but I need I need to begin to wrap up here. So I think I've got two questions left. One of them is is regarding a tweet that you did the other day. The other day, uh, a Ray Butcher, I don't know who that is. You retweeted them. They said after the Parkland shooting said, I'm joining whatever political party those kids in Florida just started. And you retweeted it and said, it is time to get out of the way and let the youth lead themselves into their future. Yes. What, what was your heart behind that? What did you mean by that? You're, I, a, you're an accomplished, you said 57 year old, like you've done so much. Like why would you, who has a lot of influence <laughs> say that? Like that's- I, I get in trouble and my wife says, you said it and I don't care if I say it again. Sure. I said, you know, at one point I said, the vote should be taken away from people over 65. Promise them their Medicare, promise them a few things that we won't touch, Social Security, Medicare. But they're not, and I know, I know, and I love my dad. He's 90 and he still goes and votes. But he doesn't care about, he, I, 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 so yeah. I said that and then I got in trouble because I said, you know, if they really wanted to fix uh, the Senate and Congress every Friday, the week out, every Friday that they don't get anything done, put all their names in a hat and then take them outside and one of them. <laughs> Can't say, you know, but I guarantee you, but it's so, I guarantee yeah. you things would start getting done. Yeah, Petty nothing's, differences nothing's done. and nothing's getting done. So we do need to get out of your future. And I've, I've been using that a little. I said it the other day and I ended up on the front page of the Plains Dealer. It was when I was telling these kids, we do need to get out of your way, but you need to start taking responsibility there for you your go. futures. Yep. And I'm seeing that. Oh, I, especially with this shooting. I well, mean, these kids are coming up. Well, and, and, I, and I've been saying it for years. Yeah. It's bubbling. 
We can't bash the millennials. The millennials will probably save us from technology because they're the only ones that grew up in technology yep. and know how dangerous it could be for people. Yep. So when they have children, maybe they're going to say, and I see it already, they're starting to have kids. Yeah. Where do they want to? They want to teach their kids how to grow yep. a tomato. Yep. They want to take them, teach them how to cook something. They yeah. want to get them outside. Read a physical book. You, a, a book, you yep. know, and you're, they have to activate as quick as possible mm. because in another few years, it may be too late for your futures. And there's a great book. How, uh, it's Baby Boomers, uh, a generation of sociopaths. Mm. They really are. They're only looking out. You know, when everyone says the world's doing great right now, well, in two weeks, because they're, the stock market went up a little bit and their pensions are doing better this week. But they're selling out your futures. Yep. And it's time for every young person to look with inside and want to see what their world's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, then again, I always look at a little self-serving. I go, I, I've been trying to be good to youth, so maybe you'll let me become the future Walmart greeter of your society because I've been kind of nice to you in the, in the past. But I am ready to get out of the way. And yeah. that's, I'm getting out of the way maybe for the music industry to, for you, the, to start your own festival, to do something the way you wanted to do it. I've done it the way I've wanted to do it for so long, and I think it's worked for a lot of people. Maybe it's not for some people. But it's time for you to take, control of your future and I'm going to take control of what I still think I can do in these opioid initiatives. I may take 20 of the nonprofit, best nonprofits on their own tour, get rid of the music and just go to college and high school campuses, bring head count next year and, and get kids to sign up because it's going to start locally too. Get involved in local communities and get, just get out there. And some people say that's easier said than done. No, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you'd be the person to do it, right? Because you've oh, spent several decades overcoming the obstacles. Last question. A part of it is hypothetical. The not hypothetical part is that someday you're going to die, right? Hopefully it's many, many years from now. You've got a lot of great work to do left. But the hypothetical part is that for some reason, I've been asked to give your eulogy. So all of all of the people you've influenced, this is a stadium full of people, the artists, the attendees, your family, your friends, your staff, they're all there. And I get to talk about your life and legacy. What do you hope in this hypothetical situation, what do you hope that I'll say about your life and your work and your legacy on that day? In a really tricky world, he kept the majority of his integrity. Wow. Okay. You know? Yeah. Because I, I tell kids all the time, when I yeah. speak to them, I say, the only thing I'm going to run out of is time. Mm. It's the only thing I'm going to run out. I'm going to run out of time. I can't imagine. But, you know, I am. And uh, that's what I want someone to say. The guy kept the majority of his integrity in a very difficult world. It's amazing. That's amazing. As people are just wrapping up here, as we're wrapping up, what do you want people to go? If there's one action step you want them to take out of this conversation, what do you want them to go look at? What do you want them to go find, support? Like, what's your one call to action here at the I end? I mean, stand for something. There you go. It's time to stand for something. Yeah. We can't just sit back. You have to stand for something. Yeah. And let's give a damn. We're all about that. Thank you, Kevin. This was so much fun. Thanks so much for doing this. Friends, thank you so much for joining Kevin and me today. As always, you can find links, resources, and show notes for this conversation and all the others at letsgiveadam.com. There, you can also find other ways to join in on what we're doing and other ways to help us continue to do what we're doing. Also, make sure to catch the Warp Tour this summer, Last Chance. I'll be at the Nashville date recording podcast interviews with nonprofit leaders there. I can't wait for that. If you're there, hit me up. Let's hang out. If the Let's Give a Damn podcast is adding value to your life in any way, my one big ask is that you go to Apple Podcasts right now, leave us a five-star rating and review. It helps us a ton, and it will literally take you 30 seconds to do so. If you're still listening here all the way to the bitter end, I'm truly honored that you choose to spend time with me and my guests each and every week. It truly means the world to me. Not a week goes by where I don't get several notes, emails, texts, direct messages, what have you, from people sharing how impactful these stories are for you. So keep them coming. Those encourage me deeply and keep giving so many dams this week. I love you all. See you next time. Bye.